If that wise Greek, who is to read this book, doubts that this turned my mind right round, let him ask his mother or wife. The moment I saw her, my child, whom I had cared for all her life, sitting there in the rain as if it meant no more to her than it does to cattle, the notion that her palace and her God could be anything but madness was at once unbelievable. All those wilder misgivings, all the fluttering to and fro between two opinions was, for that time, quite over. I saw in a flash that I must choose one opinion or the other, and in the same flash knew which I had chosen. I was pointing out last time that the Christian life is simply a process of having your natural self changed into a Christ self. Well, welcome back to the Inklings Variety Hour. This is our sixth episode on C.S. Lewis's final novel, Till We Have Phases of Myth Retold. The novel is a retelling of the Cupid and Psyche myth from the perspective of Psyche's supposedly jealous and spiteful older sister, who is transformed by Lewis's art and imagination into one of the most sympathetic and compelling characters, for my money, in modern fiction. Originally conceived by its author as an attack against the gods, the more mature Lewis turns it into a meditation on possessive love, both of humans and God. I'm Chris Pipkin, assistant professor of English at Emmanuel College in Georgia. With me, as usual, to discuss this is Annika Smith, a lawyer working in New Jersey and living in Washington, D.C. How's the move going, Annika? Uh, you know, we're, we're doing okay, and uh, D.C. is still intact, so that's good. Phew, good. Uh, our co-host, Megan Logson, is taking a theological sabbatical, learning strange and wonderful things in seminary. But with us instead this week, we have a very special guest and major Till We Have Faces scholar, Andrew Lazo. Um, Andrew Lazo is an internationally known speaker and writer specializing in C.S. Lewis and the Inklings. Andrew earned his master's in modern British literature from Rice University, where he was a Jacob K. Javits, 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 Javits fellow in the humanities. He is a frequent speaker around the U.S. and U.K. and has written several articles on C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien. In 2009, Andrew published Mere Christians, Inspiring Encounters with C.S. Lewis. In 2014, he also was honored to transcribe, edit, and publish a previously unknown book of C.S. Lewis's Early Prose Joy, which was Lewis's very first spiritual autobiography. For 10 years, he taught English and C.S. Lewis at St. Thomas and Houston Christian High Schools in Houston. He is currently a candidate for Holy Orders, preparing for the Episcopal Priesthood at Virginia Theological Seminary in Alexandria, Virginia. He's also pursuing his doctorate in Romantic Theology at Northwind Seminary where he serves as distinguished lecturer. Andrew is married to author, speaker, and radio host, Kristen Ditchfield Lazo. For more than 15 years, Andrew has been working on a long-awaited study of Till We Have Faces, making groundbreaking discoveries all along the way. You can find him at www.mythoflove.net, as well as at Andrew Lazo on Twitter and Insta, and, um, and also Andrew Lazo author on Facebook. Um, he has on his Facebook page videos of every chapter of Till We Have Faces. So if you 
want even more of Till We Have Faces after re- listening to this podcast, please check them out um, over there. Andrew, we're so excited to have you on this podcast. How are you doing? Oh my gosh. Well, take a breath. I should jot that down. <laughs> it's uh, Lewis in Four Loves talks about the golden sessions where you're with the people who are talking about the things that you love best. And so what a, what a privilege and a gift to be invited. Uh, I want to shout out David Bates from the Pints with Jack podcast, which I co-host yeah. uh, for putting us in touch. Um, I love the networking uh, that he does and, uh, I, and I'm doing great. It's a long day too. And I've got, um, I'm in seminary um, for my MDiv and have a few projects to do before eight o'clock tomorrow morning. But um, there's always time to talk about Jack, uh, especially when it comes to Till We Have Faces. Oh, well, we're, we're so honored and excited to get to talk about, you know, this book with you. Um, so when did we, we've talked a little bit about when we first read Till We Have Faces. Um, yeah. When, when did you first read it? Yeah. Um, that's a great question. Um, I talk about in my work, I talk about the Till We Have Faces whiplash where like you turn to Lewis, you turn to faces to have faces last because, you know, you got to get your way through the God of the docks and your screw tape letters and great divorce and the Narnias and, and mere Christianities and all those wonderful things. Um, and then I'm rooting around for some more fiction by Lewis. So I've run out. And so um, I get a copy till we have faces. And I think my first copy, um, some of your listeners will know the band over the Rhine from Cincinnati, uh, uh, Linford Detweiler and Karen Burquist. Well, I was traveling with Phil Keggy, the guitar player, um, back in, in those days and uh, got to so know. Fantastic. Oh, my gosh. I've got a signed British first edition of The Great Divorce given to me by Phil. So oh signed gosh. by Lewis. And yeah. So um, the wonderful guitar player, Rich Hordinsky, um, uh, was was with uh, Over the Rhine back then. And he and I became friends. He and Phil are friends. And so uh, when I had a little hiatus from Phil, I went on the road with uh, with Over the Rhine. And Linford gave me a British first edition of Till We Have Faces. And I think it was that book that I read in 1991, 92 uh, on a cross-country flight um, with Phil from LA. And just going, what the hell is this? <laughs> just, and it's that whiplash. It like goes, it flow, flew right over my head. I could tell something significant was going on and I didn't understand the thing. I just didn't get it. But it just, um, uh, uh, I think Lewis says about George MacDonald, he strikes and strikes deep, right? And so that book kind of crawled inside of me. Um, so that's when I first read it. What about you guys? Did you have that whiplash too? So everybody kind of, it grabs them usually. Um, most people aren't quite sure why. And for some people instantly, it's their favorite book. Tell me about your experiences. I'm sure that you've, you've told this story before, but I haven't heard it. Yeah, Anna, what about you? Yeah. Um, I was too young when I first read it, like mm-hmm. much of my C.S. Lewis attempts in uh, early, like junior high, high school. Um, so I think I first read it when I was 14. And I did that thing where you project what you should be taking in onto the people around you. You know, like when you hear a good sermon and you say, oh, so-and-so, my, my friend over here, this oh, yeah. really applies. So I saw, like, I, I felt so strongly that the irrational pride and closed off, like everything that I then attributed it to people in my life. Yeah. Right. And, and, yeah. and thought I was, you know, just fine. Um, <laughs> well, you weren't, weren't looking in Trom's mirror, were you? No. Um, <laughs> and then I read it again in, uh, 
in college and I was going through a, a sort of Job like season and, and asking lots of those big existential questions yeah. and finding that, that horror in the holiness mm-hmm. and the mystery beyond the revulsion, like the, uh-huh. the choice psyche makes right in chapter nine to, right. to be held by something deeper than her dreams of the Amber yeah. palace. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and that a lot of C.S. Lewis uh, over in that period, especially um, I think saved me. So, mm. yeah, but it's, it is uh, profound and I'm, I'm surprised by what's coming up, um, you know, decades later. <laughs> it's, this is now Lewis called it far and away my best book. Um, the, uh, the idiots on Pines with Jack. I mean, my esteemed colleagues Matt and David <laughs> on Pines with Jack uh, love great divorce best, but Lewis called to a faces far and away my best book. Yeah. And another letter, he calls it much my best book. And he's either right or he's wrong. And I'm going to, I'm going to go with he's right. Yeah. Um, it really blew up for me in 2006, where I was going to Williams college with the CS Lewis foundation to their summer Institute. Um, and I had been asked to teach a college level course on a couple of Lewis books. And like many academics, I wrote the blurb six months in advance and then stayed up all night and then wrote the paper on the plane because, oh crap, <laughs> got to do this. Um, but I instinctively just kind of said, um, I wanted, I want to talk about till we have faces and pair it with the four loves. And I wasn't even really sure why, but it's in 2006. It was a magic time. Tom Howard was there uh, who knew Lewis and was a great Lewis scholar. That's when I first met Malcolm Geit. Um, Francis mm. was Collins. Yeah, Francis Collins was there. Uh, just a marvelous, marvelous time. Joseph Pierce had access to all these wonderful uh, Lewis scholars. Um, and one of the things that I realized as I was preparing to teach the course is that Orwell's dishonesty is Scrutapian, right? In order to get Orwell mm-hmm. to give you real valid spiritual truth, you have to turn it right side up, right? It's kind of chiastically flipped upside down. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm like, crap, okay, she's, she, it's Tilia Faces. It's now, to, or, I'm sorry, Tilia Faces is the four loves. It's also Screwtape Letters. It's also the great divorce in a lot of ways. Yeah. Right? yeah. And then I'm like, well, Lewis doesn't do anything by halves. And Barfield says that what Lewis thought about anything is secretly present in what he wrote about or what he, Lewis thought about everything is secretly present in what he wrote about anything. And there's that cohesive, maddening, yeah. cohesive unity where when you see a theme, it's everywhere in Lewis. By the time you stumble upon it there, it's been staring at you. So I wondered if every single book wasn't until we have faces and damned if I haven't proven it, hmm. it's there, everything, <laughs> dimer yeah. spirits and bondage, things that he wrote afterwards. It's mm-hmm. all there. Hmm. Um, and so, and then when I taught it, people were in tears every day. And Annika, I love what you said about seeing Orwell and going, oh yeah, they need to hear this. And yeah, they need to hear that. You know, it's true because everybody's Orwell. Right. And Lewis makes us read in her own voice. I am old now, right? And so, um, so yeah. But then when you finally realize that it hits you that you are Orwell too, mm-hmm. Right. Um, you are unget too. Uh, but then even that, it's what Beekner calls the magnificent defeat when I realize that I'm Orwell. Yeah. And then it pops open, right? And then Orwell's ultimate answer 
um, you know how in book two, she keeps talking about the end, the last words of book one, no answer. Well, if we pay attention to the last words of book one, let's pay attention to the first words of book one. I am no answer is what the whole of book one is what she realizes, right? Which is the first, first step in spiritual growth. Chris, tell me about your first experience with this. Um, I don't know if it was that, I don't know if it was as uh, Josephian as uh, Annika's, because <laughs> uh, that really reminds me of Joseph and his brother and brothers Annika. Um, and, uh, uh, but, My family uh, is not bad at all, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> but there are three sisters. But uh, yeah, um, uh, I I just I loved. C.S. Lewis, you know, in, in junior high and high school, hadn't ever read Till We Have Faces. Um, mm-hmm. I think it was in a modern Christian writers class um, that we read it, uh, where I was being introduced to a lot of other inkling stuff I hadn't read before. Um, that was wow. that was just wonderful. I, I just remember being so struck by, you know, how different it was from mm-hmm. all of Lewis's stuff beforehand. But at the same time, obviously, there are definite you know just like you're saying andrew there are definite parallels with just about everything he wrote as well um so, there, yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, yeah. but the mode is so different right like mm-hmm. the the right this historic naturalistic like it's um it's just a different level of fiction and we we talked about it previously it's it's like having a friend you hear sing at church, maybe even the cantor, but like leading worship and then going and hearing them like they've learned to sing opera and you go and see them perform uh-huh. on the Met and it's still their voice, but it's a very different style. Let me ask you, you both this, how much do you think Joy Davidman had to do with this? Because we know that Lewis has written a book for the woman, the significant woman in his life before. Because in All My Road Before Me, in his diaries, he talks about every day going downstairs and reading his diaries to Minto, to Mrs. Moore, Hmm. right? Hmm. So he's writing those diaries first person, knowing that this woman is going to hear them, right? And that's, I think, the only other book that he does that with until Till We Have Faces. And Joy Davidman, I mean, I had a conversation with Doug Gresham in the kilns. And he said there was a double author to that book. And Joy herself reported in a letter that Lewis said, Lewis uh, said he found her help indispensable. So how much of that that you're just describing, do you think that the difference in voice, do you think that has anything to do with Joy kind of helping him write and rewrite and edit it? Well, I think definitely as an editor, um, mm-hmm. because as, as an editor, you're always working with um, with the voice that's given you, right? And you're not necessarily injecting your own voice in, but you're bringing something else out um, that's already there, whether you're mm-hmm. cutting away or just calling forth. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think that's mm-hmm. appropriate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I I am not familiar with uh, Joy Davidman's stuff, so I don't know in terms of it. It's it's definitely you know it it feels like a very different style from what mm-hmm. Lewis writes, and it feels more. I, I was actually I was reading it with uh, with my I, I was reading like a chapter with my wife uh, the mm-hmm. other day, um, and she was like, "This this sounds American," because um, mm-hmm. she's in she's into American literature. And, and mm-hmm. she was like, this is way more American than 
other stuff I've heard. Yeah. This, uh, right. Which is, which is interesting. Um, yeah. I mean, it's modernist um, and in a way that his other stuff is not um, yeah. it's uh, it's, it's something. And I, I think, you know, his, his reading it, writing it for joy and uh, um, writing it with joy may be the, the special sauce here. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I made a fun discovery. Her 1951 novel, Weeping Bay, um, about the, the, the French, uh, French uh, fishing community in northern uh, New York. There's a passage in there, and I won't, I, I won't say any more than this. It's, I got to save it for the book. Um, but there's a passage in there that I am convinced that Lewis swiped from her and rewrote hmm. in Toya Faces. Um, so I think that he's really aware of, of, of her presence. Yeah, it's, it seems. And, and what I'd love somebody to do, because she's writing in Greek, right? So I would love somebody to translate Till We Have Faces into classical Greek. Because I think Lewis is thinking in classical Greek and translating it into English. Right? It's, an, it's a Greek prose comp yeah. exercise yeah. for him. Yeah, you know what I noticed, um, mm. and this is for, I'm sure this is something you've noticed already. He has Homeric similes in this, um, mm. like these these moments where you know in in uh, in the Odyssey and in the Iliad, uh, especially where where it'll say you know um, just as you know a lion leapt upon his prey, so yeah, did nice. Menelaus, blah blah blah, and so you've got like. Lewis saying at the end of uh, chapter 10, uh, you have seen a lost child in a crowd run up to a woman whom it takes for its mother and how the woman turns round and shows the face of a stranger. And then the look in the child's eyes silent a moment before it begins to cry. Psyche's face was like that checked blank happiest assurance suddenly dashed all the pieces. Um, and there are a few other moments as well um, that, that, that I was noticing where you have this oh. moment where he's describing something ordinary in order to give you insight on this extraordinary thing just like they do in you know just like homer does in the in the iliad and the odyssey uh, yeah no i've got to make a note in my book that's awesome um i think the analogy comes up from comes from joy though right because the two boys and getting lost in the crowd yeah right um uh, but and then Louis, one of lewis's last stories he doesn't ever publish it in his lifetime it's called menelaus golden hair Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I've read that after 10 years. Right. Yeah. And um, it's about Menelaus, whose wife's name was. Helen. Helen. Yeah. And Lewis's wife's name was Helen. Right. That's what that was her given name. Helen oh, Joy Davidman. Didn't know right? that. That's great. So and but he stops writing fiction after this because Joy dies mm. and he can't bring himself to really kind of get there. Hmm. Hmm. yeah oh so rich yeah um yeah as long as we're talking about influences um yeah. uh Annika, uh, are you on oh i can't hear you oh hey oh there you are okay good annika brought up um last time we talked about this um and i, I can't believe i i'd either forgotten it or it had never occurred to me um but um but pearl um the uh the medieval mm-hmm. dream poem um uh is absolutely present here in um in, in this moment in in this meeting between Oriol and and psyche um and and you you just kind of mentioned it casually annika but but 
you didn't really like talk about it some more. Was, was there more you wanted to say about Pearl? Well, I mean, really, it just came for me. And you're taking this from someone who is a political science major, not uh, not someone who did a, a full study, someone who read casually the Pearl. So, um, but the the crossing of the water and the the water not just being the river sticks and, and death, but also that those who die are beyond us. And um, in the untouchable by us sort of way and the grief that brings the same way the, the father, the narrator of the Pearl is longing for his precious daughter. And um, the, the beauty of seeing her oh, changed, cool. right? Um, changed as she has grown and has this other existence so apart from him and all the natural um, closer to the, the homelier um, and familiar loves that he would have had um, had she remained living with him the way he had desired and begged God for. Yeah. You must yeah. be right. You must be right. And that's the, that's the crazy thing about Lewis is that he read everything and he remembered it. Right. right? You know, yeah. these stories, have you heard these stories about his fantastic memory? Um, like he would have students in his rooms and have them pick a book off a shelf, any one of the 40 bookshelves and open it anywhere and read a line. And Lewis would quote the rest of the page. Oh man. <laughs> I mean, again and again and again, you know, he's doing this. I've seen a copy of the betting book at, at the, at the junior common room in modeling college. Um, and it said, Mr. Stevens bet Mr. Lewis that the word Eros, written out in Greek characters, does not appear in the Odyssey. And then in parentheses, it says a bottle of port, right? <laughs> and then underneath it says, paid by Mr. Stevens. <laughs> but Lewis knew the Odyssey well enough to know that the word Eros didn't appear in the mm. Odyssey. So he must have done that. And I just held up your listeners cannot, cannot see here. I'll let them hear. Oh, Yes is Tolkien's translation yeah. of the Pearl, which Lewis knew. And of course, um, there are passages in, in Prince Caspian, and there are passages from, uh, from the, the medieval translation of Sir Orfeo, which Tolkien also did. Um, so I think that you're right in the center of the, of the target. And, and Lewis is putting it all in there. I think till we have faces, he intended as an actual masterpiece. I mean, at the level of a Hamlet right. or whatever. And I think that there are depths and levels and illusions there that we won't even begin to know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and listeners, if you go to, um, you know, look up Pearl and look at some of the original um, uh, illustrations in that manuscript, which are actually mostly like quite crude, but there there are illustrations of the dreamer in the poet in the poem standing on one side of this river, and mm -hmm. his lost daughter is standing on the oh. other side. Um, it's a it's such a beautiful poem. Um, he this this poet also wrote um, Sir Gowan and the Green Knight, which is which is more famous, uh, but Pearl is absolutely beautiful and heartbreaking there's this you know there's this line um where you know he's 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 described uh you know losing his uh his daughter his pearl um who he dropped in the garden and never managed to find again and then he he goes into this um dream vision where he sees this beautiful woman standing on the other side of this uh <laughs> river much as Oriol, you know sees sees psyche and 
he's questioning her about, you know, uh, about who she is and about, um, or, and about what life is like in heaven. Um, and, mm-hmm. and she's like, well, you know, don't you know, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm queen here. And he's like, come on, you know, when, when I lost you, you didn't even know, you know, you, you, you only had just learned your paternoster, right. Um, and, and, uh, and your creed. And she essentially ends up taking the role of the authoritative right. older one mm. uh, to, to the dreamer, even though she was just a little girl when she died, you know, much the way that uh, Psyche here, you know, becomes uh, an authority figure sort of over Oriol. And the pain of that, whereas the whereas the poet in the pearl is able to release his child and, and to yeah. accept God's providence and God's sovereignty, Orwell is rebelling against it and refuses and will demand the child again, yeah. that mm. she could cradle the child in her arms. And even if it's to Psyche's, even if it's pulling Psyche back from paradise. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Oh, that's so rich. There's I've the, got it, man. I've there's this to- great- totally missed that. Yeah, go. There's this great line. My favorite is, uh, you know, he he says, um, we meet so seldom by stock or stone. It's just this beautiful, poignant moment of of understatement. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. we're like we, we, we so rarely meet, you know, uh, when he's, he's lost. Or anyway, sorry, Andrew, I didn't mean to. No, no, no. Uh, while you're doing this, I'm looking at all of Lewis's books. Let me see if it's, do I have Allegory of Love? Yes, let's see. So I'm looking at all of Lewis's letters and his diaries to see if he mentions Pearl. Um, oh, this is fantastic. This is real-time research. Right on. Yeah. Right on. Um, <laughs> let's see. No, he doesn't mention. Oh, let's see. He doesn't mention Pearl per se. Um, uh, maybe he does it in the Oh Hell, but I'm sure that he's aware of it. And and I think that this the Gawain stuff is. So I, Tolkien translated Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, Pearl and Sir Orfeo. And mm-hmm. I think that that was, um, and he does it in alliterative meter, a lot of these. Um, uh, and I think that that was kind of an inklings exercise, um, if I'm not mistaken. Actually, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's even the, the, the sort of culminating moment in the Pearl is when he sees the New Jerusalem there across the river as well, right? The dreamer right. is allowed to see this beautiful, um, you know, <laughs> structure like nothing else he's seen because they basically take the description of the New Jerusalem from Revelation and describe it in, the, in these sort of, you know, Middle English terms. Okay. Um, but, um, but yeah, it's, a, it's, it's such a beautiful, um, even if he didn't consciously do it i've got to think it was there somewhere it's in there, there it's in, in the, the mix in the sure. yeah in the in the um in the web yeah. well and this idea of seeing and i think it's next chapter or it's chapter 12 maybe where orwall sees the palace and then lies about it to everybody right but she actually sees psyche's palace and she never tells bardia and she never tells the fox yeah. And this is, I think, so central to so much of what Lewis is about. Because who's his favorite character in the Chronicles of Narnia? Lucy. Gotta be Lucy. In fact, in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, that's the only time the narrator speaks to any of the children. And the narrator of Narnia speaks to Lucy about the, the, the last sea. Was it so sad? Sad. She said, no. And that's all she would ever say. Lucy is the lucid one, right? Lux Lucas Light. Mm-hmm. Saint Lucy is the patron saint of the blind. 
Plus there's a blessed Lucy in a little town in Italy called Narni. And I've seen Lewis's map of Italy and Narni is underlined, right? Mm. So Lucy light vision. And it's what they say in magician's nephew, what you see depends a great deal on where you stand. It also depends on what sort of person that you are. And so in kind of my work on Lewis, kind of the overarching underlying theme of everything is love. But the, what Lewis wants about love is to help us to see everything clearly so that we can ultimately see love clearly. And at the end of that, see the love of God clearly. But this idea of clarifying right? Making clear of perception, of trying not to obfuscate. Think of how many times in an essay, Lewis has, tr- has t- challenged us to define our terms and let's establish clearly what we're arguing about. Mm-hmm. So seeing clearly is crucial to Lewis. And Orwall has this moment where she sees the palace and then she lies about it. Now watch this. The only time she sees it, she gets up at midnight, she goes down to the stream for a drink of water and she kneels. Mm-hmm. And even though Orwell is the most self-obsessed person I've ever met in literature, <laughs> just by physically, uh, physically taking the position of humility, the God of love, who himself is the God of love and the son of the God of love, who is married to psyche, which means the soul. Well, every Sunday I, I go celebrate somebody who is the son of the God of love who is married to the human soul at church, he reveals himself to her and she denies it. So she lies about vision and that there's this kind of lie that's at the heart of her. And that's kind of what defines it. And that lie, I think kind of pervades into the dishonesty of all of book one to the point where she's she, in book two, she calls all of book one perjury, mm. um, but it's this vision that she has and then denies. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm wondering how this also plays in. Um, I'm thinking as you're talking about shame and the role of shame and hiddenness mm-hmm. um, for Orwell, mm. uh, because this is uh, back in. Uh, I think we're still in chapter ten uh, when when Psyche is explaining to her and saying, "You shall see the gods for yourself. It must mm-hmm. be. I'll make it so." Um, and she explains immediately when, when I saw the West wind. So the first God psyche encounters, I was neither glad nor afraid at first. I felt ashamed, mm-hmm. ashamed of looking like a mortal, ashamed of being a mortal, but how could you help that? Don't you think the things people are most ashamed of are the things they can't help? Yes. I thought of my ugliness and said nothing. There's something um, purgative uh, about her act of writing this all out, even as she lies to herself and lying to us, because in her, even this refusal to admit her shame, she's writing it out to us, right? She's Mm -hmm. writing, I thought of my ugliness and said Mm -hmm. nothing. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's this but but the ugliness is is what keeps her hidden right it's what keeps her from encountering the gods and um i'm wondering the yes and no because her ugliness is her gift mm. her ugliness and peter scockle rightly insists that it's not metaphoric but physical ugliness 
And Lewis made much of the fact that he, you know, did what no other Englishman had done before. Um, he'd spoken for the length of a book through the mouth of an ugly woman. Right. But think about the liberty that her ugliness gives her. Well, it's why she became the the counselor. Right. And, was and why she wasn't married off. Right. 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 Um, but then remember what happens when she hears the voice, why should your heart not dance? And she says, I had seen nothing but drought and weather things. Um, the freshness and wetness all about me made me feel, I'm in nine on 96 in my version, made me feel that I had misjudged the world. It seemed kind mm -hmm. and laughing as if its heart also danced. Even my ugliness, I could not quite believe who can feel ugly when the heart meets delight. Mm -hmm. And what happens is she says no to that delight, which is another word for joy. Why should your heart not dance? And she tells her heart the lessons that it has not to dance. And her refusal of joy is what blinds her to the palace, which we know is really there. The goblet, the food, the clothing, it's all there. But Orwell is like the dwarves who would not be taken in, mm -hmm. right? And I saw that in your notes, but that's, yeah. And so it's her refusal of joy that robs her of vision. And it's this self-centeredness, right? Because joy in the, at the end of Surprise by Joy, I just gave a paper at the Oxford Lewis Society. Joy, Zenzuk, is a signpost to love. He says, joy points to something other and outer. And the only thing other and outer Lewis says, uh, love is where we go out of ourselves to meet the other. So other and outer is love. Joy points to love. Joy points to the emptiness where love is supposed to come in. Lucy sees because she loves. Orwal won't see because she refuses even the signpost to love, which is delight. And so she just becomes obsessed with her ugliness, Right. But even when she looks in the mirror, what does her father, what does her father say? You know, who do you see? Who do you see? And she says, I'm Ungat. And she despairs. But Ungat is love. She can't even see herself in loving terms. But Psyche sees her in loving terms. Right. And that's the wonderful about book. You'll have to invite me back when you get back. Get to book <laughs> oh, two. man. Yeah. Guaranteed. We would love to. Yeah. But this idea that love is the center and it's tied to the abandonment of self, right? Mm. Love is turning from me and turning towards you, right? Those are the two component parts of love, especially in Lewis. And that's what affords us vision. So when she kneels, she can then see the palace. And that's the gods, the gods actually, and this is the great secret that she won't admit, the gods love her. Mm. And the gods are trying to get to her with this love. And she just keeps refusing because, yeah, well, Redival's a blonde, blah, 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 you know. <laughs> and she just won't see with this kind of this investment in others. But yeah. I mean, isn't that all of us when, I mean, obviously we're, we're all Orwell, but um, the, the tragedy of someone's trying to love you and you're receiving it as actually they, they hate me. Like the gods, the gods have it in for me, Orwell says. Like, this is my complaint against the gods. See, see what they do. They, they build you up and they blow you big like a bubble so that then they can prick you just when they have you where they want you. Yes. Right. Yes. Um, 
is the theme throughout the the whole of the first book. Um, right, and and you're so wise to pick up on that exact word um, because it's in Grief Observed, where Lewis said, "I loved how she uh, of Joy Davidman. I loved how she." pricked all my balloons mm. i soon learned not to talk rot That's to good. her except for the sheer delight of walking of seeing her knock my legs out from under me okay. <laughs> so what love wants to do is to be exposed and still loved yeah i mean yeah. i would sink like a stone yep. if my wife didn't see my ugliness and then love me right if i had to hide my ugliness from her or if i had to be afraid that it wouldn't meet a loving reception right. and of course that's the face of christ and that's the counter to shame. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Guilt is quick and easy and transactional. Guilt you take to the cross and you let it go. Shame is screw tape trying to paint you with the brush of guilt when Christ has surrounded us in the light of his love. You know, and it's that mirror that he, uh, that he holds up to us where we wail at the sight of the mirror. But what he really says is you're beloved, right? And that's the struggle of Orwell all the way through. So is that the same kind of shame? Um, is it the same kind of shame that Psyche feels in the presence of the West Wind? Or is this simply a knowledge of her, her mortality in the face of something inherently greater than herself? Or, or not, I mean, if she's the bride yeah. of a God, it, it's not, right? But, but there's, a, there's a mortal shame here. It's not just shame having to do with yeah. sin, yeah. presumably. I don't know. Well, Zephyrus is a god. What do you think, Annika? Well, I, um, <laughs> I, I wonder if it's something of Psyche's, um, the same way we're all Orwell and we're all Psyche, there is something off that Psyche is the bride of the god, right? Like, yeah. there's something off about that. Um, and she's, she says later on when she is taken into the house, um, how can I tell you what it felt like? Uh, I knew they were all spirits and I wanted to fall at their feet, but I daren't. If they made me mistress of that house, mistress, I should have to be. Yet all the time I was afraid there might be some bitter mockery in it. And that any terrible moment, terrible laughter might break out. And, and that's when uh, Orwell says, oh, with a long breath, how well I understood. Oh, but I was wrong, sister, utterly wrong. That's part of the mortal shame. So that um, Psyche too had that mortal shame that cringes away, right? From, from intimacy with right. God. But the flip of that, remember that every mm -hmm. downside is a good thing twisted. And so what I think that she's talking about here is the numinous, right? Mm -hmm. That mm -hmm. sense of being... Um, being struck Undone. by the yes. by the yeah. by the goodness. It's Father Christmas is is where he explains it best. Um, that he was so big and so glad and so real that the children fell silent. They felt very solemn but also mm -hmm. glad, right? And that shame and Zephyrus is a god. I mean, he's a minor god, but he's a god. And that shame, but she's the mistress of the house of love. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's that same shame as the other mistress of the house of love, the blessed virgin. Right. How will this be? You know, she is the she's the queen of, you know, Revelation describes her as the, the, mm -hmm. the, the queen with the 12 stars and she's the mother of love. 
right? How will it be? You know, behold the handmaid of the Lord. How will it be? You know, and she says, the angel will let it be with me as you have said, right? Um, and, and Elizabeth says the same thing. How can it be the mother of my Lord would come to me? And there's psyche kind of occupying this almost theotokos role, but it's because she's willing to say yes to love and let love take her. Right. Then what is the role? Yes, absolutely. But I'm wondering about the role of the yet all the time I was afraid. And that's the mortal shame that I was afraid there might be some terrible, some bitter mockery, right? That, that the gods would be, it's like psyche also has this whisper to her of the gods are setting you up. Like this yeah. is right. And, and she resists that. Um, maybe it's how not... long did it take for her to get over it? Right. Yeah. Although, and it's only the, um, it's only Orwell who can force her to disobey. Right. And it's when Orwell says, okay, choose between Storgi and Eros right mm -hmm. now go. But I think that she gets over it, but it's a process for her and she's not made more or made immortal until after she completes all the tasks in the myth. Right. But once she finishes the tasks, then, you know, um, Aphrodite relents and then they make her a goddess. And so what she is, is she's in process, right? She's in formation like we all are, right? And we all have the image of God in us, but we all haven't grown into the fullness of it. St. Paul says, he who began a good work will bring it to completion at the day of Christ, but it won't happen fast. Mm -hmm. Right. And so this idea that we are bound for eternal love, well, who can stand it? You know, who can stand that reality, but we were, we're being fitted for it. It's like somebody has to ice cream scoop us out on the inside to make space for all that goodness. Yeah. Which, which, which goes back to, you know, your point that um, Orwell's ugliness is, is, is a gift um, that it's a, um, that it's a, um, it's, it's, one of the ways in which space can potentially be made for her, you know, um, sure. for, for, for her sanctification. Uh, yeah. Which is, which is interesting because I think, I think it is also metaphorically, you know, it, it stands for her, her own self, her, her own sort of self-perceived unfitness. Um, yeah. You know, You're totally right. Before, totally right. before the gods, like akin to in the new text, in the old Testament you know, people with deformities weren't allowed to enter, you know, right. past a yeah. certain point, um, you know, and in, 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 into the presence of, of you know, God and the, and the tabernacle or the temple. But yeah, there, there's, there's obviously more to the story once it's, once it's sort of flipped over. And then there's the great irony that she covers over her face to the point where nobody has ever seen her face. Mm -hmm. But what happens? Gloamish women, after they have babies, get fat. Redival does. Ansett does right? They get all soft and doughy. Um, she doesn't, she keeps her figure. And then she's got that marvelous voice that Trunia hears. And she's like, oh, there must be, you know, the, uh, such a beautiful voice. There must be a beautiful face behind it. And so she's given almost these commensurate beauties. And so when she wails about mm -hmm. how, and she says, you know, who will, who knows what will happen when the, when the queen dies, maybe I'll be turned out and who can look for no other love. Well, she's surrounded by love. Right. She's surrounded by Storgi from, uh, from Pubi, Philia from Bardia. She's surrounded by love and she keeps thwarting other people's loves, you know, and she doesn't realize. And then she wails and she says, oh, 
oh no, I am Ungat too. But it hits her that she is Ungat and she is Psyche. She's love and the beloved, right? And that's why, and, and I know what the words are at the end of the book that her head obscures. I know what's underneath that at M dash. I know what those words are. But once again, you'll have to invite me back. <laughs> Sounds great. <laughs> but you're totally right about, you know, this, her ugliness is, is in some ways very metaphorical because she's small and ugly of heart. And, you know, it's interesting thinking about um, what you said earlier about screw tape and how um, reading Orwell, you're, you're getting that screw tapian sort of moral teaching, right? Uh, Because she makes the wrong choice every time of of shutting her heart out. Uh, And later on when she says um, her whole heart leaped to shut the door against something monstrously amiss Mm -hmm. um, and to keep it shut. Perhaps I was fighting not to be mad myself. And, And she even she it's it's like she's justifying it you know i was trying to escape from madness i could see i could see that psyche was going crazy because i saw the rain fall on her face and she was out there like wild cattle she was no better than no no smarter than a dumb animal who didn't know to get dry in the rain right and so i'm trying to keep myself from going crazy and by entering her madness uh-huh. so i can save her yeah. Um, and that's why I had to shut the door. I had to shut the door and not enter into that chaos. Right. Um, and I wonder, there's so many, there's so many encounters we have where it's like, oh, well, I've, I've got to keep my guard up. I've got mm-hmm. to have my boundaries. I've got to, um, resist something here. Um, and the fight and the struggle that we often have is actually against, what is the very best thing for us? And Jesus said, all who the father gives me will come to me and no one can take them out of my hands. Now the scripture says that underneath are the everlasting arms, right? There is this fundamental safety to the love of God. Mm. Now, either he's powerful or powerless. And I'm not saying that horrific things don't happen. They happen every day and we're surrounded by them. But none of that trumps ultimately the love of God. And none of that trumps the end of the book where he has kept all of our tears in a bottle, right? And will wipe away all of our tears, right? It's Psalm 84 where he turns the valley of weeping into a place of springs. That alchemy of salt water to sweet is what God is all about. And we also know countless stories of people who have been through unbearable things who say yes to God. And who soften the heart instead of harden the heart. I just watched a documentary about a Holocaust survivor who forgave the prison guard. And Corey Ten Boom did the same thing, Hmm. right? And we know that there are those those stories of triumphs and that that our Lord was like a sheep before shears silent, right? And so the monstrous thing is actually love. And she has become like the dwarves who form a circle facing each other and the dwarves are for the dwarves and they will not be taken in. Yeah. Yeah. But in is where we need to go. Yeah. Just to, just to orient our our listeners um, just a little bit. So at the end of chapter 10, um, uh, this, this comes right back around to what you're, what you're talking about here, Andrew, Um, at the end of chapter 10, you know, she's, 
asking psyche is this really true have you been brought into mm-hmm. the house of this of this god if, if this is true everything has to be go- be begun over again you're not playing a game with me show me show me your palace of course i will she said rising let us go in and don't be afraid whatever you see or hear is it far said i she gave me a quick astonished look far to where she said to the palace to this god's house you have seen a lost child in a crowd run up to a woman whom it takes for its mother and how the woman turns round and shows the face of a stranger and then the look in the child's eyes silent a moment before it begins to cry psyche's face was like that checked blank happiest assurance suddenly dashed all to pieces oriole she said beginning to tremble what do you mean i too became frightened though i had yet no notion of the truth mean said i where is the palace how far have we go to, have we to go to reach it she gave one loud cry but then with white face staring hard into my eyes she said but this is it oriole it is here or yeah you are standing on the stairs of the great gate right and then and then we have the beginning of of chapter 11 right where if anyone could have seen us at that moment i believe he would have thought we were two enemies met for a battle to the death mm. right so psyche see sees the palace psyche is interacting with the things in the palace and orwell does not um see it and and to her she's just up in the in the middle of a wild place Um, and in that previous page she says if this is all true i've been wrong all my life everything has to be begun over again yeah and we must be born again right um, I just was listening to a podcast with Jordan Peterson who said exactly this thing. No, this really is who Jesus is. And I, and he's been reading Lewis. He talked about Lewis. He quoted Lewis and he said, it's staggering the implications of it. I mean, I think he's near the cusp and he's, you know, and, and he's talking with a Greek uh, Orthodox icon writer. Hmm. It's just, it was just uh, Max McLean just posted on his Facebook page a couple of days ago. And he's wow. like this close and he's grappling with this kind of story at the heart of all the stories. And he, and Peterson tears up when talking mm. about the person of Christ, realizing that it has to, that if this really is true, right. It shifts the whole gravitational center of everything. Right. And he's, he's right there. Lord help him. Lord bless him. You know? And he said, he said something to the effect of, you know, what will it make of me? Right. And, um, or what am I to make of this, of this person of Jesus? And of course, Lewis has got the perfect essay in the God in the dock, this essay, what are we to make of Jesus Christ? And this Lewis's fundamental answer is, well, what is Jesus Christ to make of us? That's the real question. And Orwell in saying, if this is all true, I've been wrong all my life. Hallelujah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Everything has to be begun over right? Psyche, is it true? You're not playing a game with me. Show me your palace. But she's already shut down right. the optic invitation from joy because of selfishness. And if she could get over herself. And remember, even Aslan couldn't make the dwarfs to see. And even the bright spirits couldn't make the, uh, make the ghosts to stay, Yeah. right? Uh, there will those who will who who will say to God, "Thy will be done," and those to whom God says, "Okay, have it your way," right? And or but or the gods won't even let Orwell go. And by the end of the book, she begins to see that it wasn't hatred and ugliness; it was love and beauty that had been chasing her down all of her life. Yeah, yeah. Oh. 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. We've got this, um, this, this difference in perception being, yes. being basically a function of where two characters are spiritually and, you know, the extent to which your spiritual orientation determines your, um, I mean, not your reality, but your perception. Yes. Right. Um, uh, is is definitely like like you were saying, Andrew. It's it's all over Lewis, and it comes so beautifully into focus here in this, you know, in the in in these chapters. Will we meet God in outer space? Right. Um, is Lewis's essay, mm-hmm. um, or will we lose God in outer space? He says the Russians went to outer space, and they came back and they said, "There's no God. We went to heaven, and we didn't see God, so there's no God." <laughs> And he says in that essay, kind of this echo of what happens in Magician's Nephew, so much depends upon the seeing eye, Mm. right? And if you'll blind yourself, if you'll turn your eyes away, then how can you see, right? There's only so much. The dwarves would not be taken in, right? But Oral will eventually. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, There's this... uh great passage um, where she talks about, you know, how, you know, this just completely shook and unsettled her. Right. Um, And, and, you know, gave her the kind of fear that Bardia had at the beginning when he saw Psyche, Mm -hmm. you know, and then he's, she's just kind of like, let's get out of here. This is a dreadful place. Right. Um, Full of the divine sacred, no place for mortals. There might be a hundred things in it that I could not see. She talks about her dreams, right, um, and and how she would see something different from what she felt, and that this all comes back from to this moment, uh, sickening discord, a rasping together of two wor- worlds, like two bits of a broken bone, but in the reality, not the dreams. With the horror came the inconsolable grief, for the world had broken in pieces, and Psyche and I were not in the same piece. Mm-hmm. Seas, mountains, madness, death itself could not have removed her from me to such a hopeless distance as this. Gods, and again, gods, always gods, they had stolen her. They would leave us nothing. But yet, in that separation, can you hear the, can't you hear the echo to Pyralandra, where the mm-hmm. seas separate them? Mm-hmm. And who is Ransom separated from? Tinnadril, right? Mm-hmm. Who's yeah. Tinnadril is the queen of Pyralandra. What's the other name for Pyralandra? What's the earthly name? Venus. Which is also? Unget. Which is also? Love. He's separated from the queen of love, right? It's all, it all, you know, kind of fits this, you know, this fits back together. And then it cycles back around to that Orpheus tale that we were talking about earlier, which picks up Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Because Eustace is this same kind of selfish, right? And he falls asleep on a dragon's horde thinking dragonish thoughts and he becomes a dragon. And then he looks into the pool and sees that he's a dragon. And there's that great illustration of him wailing, you know, with the armband. And, um, and he tries to dig himself out of the, out of the, the dragon skin. And three times he tries to do it and, and, uh, and, he, and it won't work. And then he sees Aslan and Aslan says, you must let, you must let me undress you. And Aslan drives the, 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 the talon in, um, the claw in and tears it off of him. But Eustace is the anti-narcissus, um, right? He's the anti-narcissus. He looks into the pool, sees how ugly it, he is, mm. falls into a healthy self-loathing, which saves him and he lives. 
Narcissus does the very opposite, sees the pool, sees how beautiful he is, falls into love with him, falls into love with himself and then lives or, and then dies. Right. And so there's this kind of flipping of it. And then Eustace is freed from this dragon skin and then comes and talks to, to Edmund, who has one of the, my favorite things. Um, it might even be my gravestone someday. Um, he says, Oh, Aslan, I've heard you all talking about him. Um, do you know him? And Edmund says, well, he knows me, right? And this is Orwell. She doesn't realize it now. Do you know love? Do you know the God of the mountain? Well, he knows me, right? Yeah. He knows Psyche and he knows her, but we don't find that out until she finally confesses up at the end of the book. So it's, yeah, it's just, yeah. it's loaded up with that stuff. That constant pursuit, um, uh -huh seeking to pierce her so right after that that passage you read chris um they would leave us nothing right. um that they also wouldn't leave her alone the very next thing uh, a thought pierced up through the crust of my mind mm. like a crocus coming up in the early year oh. was she not worthy of the gods ought they not to have her but instantly great choking blinding waves of sorrow swept it away and <laughs> Oh, I cried. It's not right. It's not right. Psyche, come back. So she, these, these influences, right. From the gods are still pursuing her. Mm -hmm. And that, that spring Easter image of the yes. crocus flower, right. Yes. Being the one to come up through the, the crust, that earth that seems like it's, is just dead. Yes. Um, that there's no hope for it. Yes. And I, that, that un, insatiable pursuit to match her inconsolable grief um, is really striking me a lot more on this reading. And remember Prince Caspian, it's the evil and the self-centered and it's the green, the, the green the lady, the green kirtle from your Gawain story that digs up in order to take over and rule, but it's love that goes down to liberate. Mm. It's selfishness that comes up to, uh, to, to consume and to captivate. And that Eustace thing happens in book two where Orwell and Trom dig down three times and then face the mirror. Mirrors are huge in Lewis, right? And that's when she admits that she's love, you know? And even then she doesn't really realize how good a thing that is from what she's saying. She's so, um, she's so sort of, unwilling to have anything other than her idea of the way psyche should be which corresponds to you know an uh, an unreal version of psyche from the past from when oriel you know believed mm -hmm. she was happy mm -hmm. um you know and she you know she's the 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 great choking blinding waves of sorrow oh it's not right it's not right oh psyche come back where are you come back come back um, when what the gods want is her is Orwell um, and, and they want her to be psyche, right? They, mm -hmm. they want her to be uh, the, the bride of the gods as, as well. Um, mm -hmm. But she doesn't want that. She wants, and she also doesn't want psyche to get to that either. Right. right. She, she wants in She's... her smallness and her possessive love mm -hmm. wants only the happiness that she has known. Mm -hmm and not the greater happiness that it's a prelude to. Right. Um, She's Pam, who would drag Michael down to hell 
right? In the great divorce, the mother with the child, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, give him back to me. And I can't believe in a God, you know, who would keep a mother from her, mm-hmm. from her child. Well, she'll only be happy in hell. And then there she won't be happy. But she would rather rob heaven from Michael than lose him. That's not happiness, right? And it's that, that kind of overwhelming selfishness. And you hear it so clearly echoed here. Well, it's that, it's that selfishness that's, um, that's domination, right? And control. And that's right. also why suddenly she's, she's acting like her father, uh, a fury. My father's mm-hmm. own fury fell upon me. Mm-hmm. Um, and she started screaming at what she didn't understand. It's when um, Psyche's explaining the gates and the shining walls. And just as uh, in, I think the chapter before, or maybe a couple chapters before, um, Bardia explains to her that, you know, the king is not so bad among the men, like the mm-hmm. soldiers. It's really just when he gets among women and servants, like those he doesn't understand and he's afraid, yeah. I think, because he's afraid of them. And yeah. it's this, when she encounters what she doesn't understand, that fury comes out mm-hmm. and that it's like a panic comes upon her. And they both compare each other to their father. You're just like your father. You look just like your fa- our father, yeah. right? And they both have elements of him that are, you know, troubling and, and potentially redemptive. So, yeah. Yeah. So in, um, in chapter 11, we, uh, you know, they, they disagree about, you know, you have this very last battle Dwarvian moments, right. With the, um, you know, well, what about if, don't don't tell me you didn't see the goblet you complimented me on the goblet don't tell me you didn't drink the wine and she's like oh psyche you know that was a game we were playing right and then the thing that makes her finally decide absolutely that psyche must be out of her mind is seeing Mm -hmm. her like annika was saying um in uh in in the rain um and and not able to come back so i guess the final question and i i I probably we probably need to uh wrap uh, wrap this up. Um, but the final question that I have is what do you think it is? Uh, Andrew, you, you mentioned her kneeling and drinking from the water, um, in, in chapter 12, when she finally does see Psyche's house in the middle of the night, is it, you know, we have, we have again here sort of a physical posture, um, that, um, that, that causes a, a kind of spiritual condition, Straight out of screw uh, screw tape. Yeah, yeah. Is there? Yeah, absolutely. They're you know they're they're animals with with spirits, right? So mm-hmm. of course their um, physical um, posture affects mm-hmm. um, yeah. their spirit. I was wondering re- this time reading through, is there anything about her sort of homely meal with Bardia um, mm-hmm. that acts as a sort of preparation for that moment as well? Um, because she talks about tasting mm-hmm. this sort of mortal food, or is Bardia more? someone who you know perhaps distracts her from from this yeah it's a great question i'm going to answer it sideways and see if it gets us any closer um you got the three influences on orwell's life and the three kind of approaches to the gods um bardia is very earthy and he's very um he's kind of like the big man on the bus i just want my rights i just do my duty right he's kind of superstitious about the gods and he's just very dutiful I wouldn't eat with my left hand. I wouldn't do this. Mm -hmm. And so he's this kind of, he's a churchman, right? Yeah. He's religious. 
but it, he doesn't really. And so he gets as far as you can go. The ritualistic priest gets close as well. And there are some pieces of the old priest and the new priest that get there. Um, so that God needs sacrifice and blood and mystery and darkness. God needs obedience and God needs, you know, me to do the right thing and, and kind of righteous daily behavior. The fox, oh, well, the gods and its nature and its philosophy. And they each kind of come towards what God really is, but don't get all of it. And so I think the return to Bardia is the kind of return to homeliness and the return to the kind of quotidian every day. Um, and, you know, and the, the great question is, what would Bardia have said if she told him I saw the house? As a dutiful guy, he would have been, you should go and make sacrifice, right? You should cut an olive branch and you should go. You should do whatever your duty it is to the gods if you really saw the god's palace, right? Better to be at the god's palace shut out than anywhere else. Bardia would probably have gotten there. If she told the fox, I really saw the palace of the gods and she convinced him and she could have, he would have said, ah, my philosophy isn't enough. There must be more. And some of the philosophers, you know, uh, you know, know about this. I need to revise and they need to know more. And if she told, you know, the, if she told the, the priest, they would go build a shrine right at the edge of the valley, but she never tells them. And if she had, things would have changed. Mm. Right. And so I think the return to Bardia is a return. And I think she's already developing a schoolgirl school girl crush on. So she's trading divine eros for mm -hmm. human eros, which she can't have. But then she sets about to spend the rest of her life to spoil Bardia's marriage by keeping him too long in the palace for the pleasure of hearing his voice. And Ansett rightly hates her for it. Right. Yeah. And so th I think that there's this kind of return, you know, and it, in all of those things, if you see them the right way, they could have been a sign, right? Yeah. Um, and and that's that's always true, you know. And so much depends upon the seeing eye. And if you close the seeing eye, you won't be able to see whatever's right in front of you. And I think that's what happens too. And so I th think she goes back to the very quotidian comforts that Barty offers. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, Andrew Lazo, thank you so much for joining us. This has been such a pleasure. Um, please come back anytime. Entirely mine. It's uh, been entirely mine. So. Um, where again can people um, sort of follow you and and uh, catch up with all of the awesome projects that you're, uh, you know, you've got well, in the works? Pretty active on Facebook. Um, I try to keep my site, myth, the mythoflove.net. Um, updated. In fact, I just last week gave a paper to the Oxford C.S. Lewis Society. Um, and that was delightful. Michael Ward was there. Rowan Williams showed up and, oh, and, wow. and uh, Holly Ordway was there, who's just released a marvelous new book. Steve Beebe was there. And so they just released the, the uh, Zoom uh, recording of that. And uh, so I just put that up on, on mythoflove.net. Um, Andrew Lazo is the YouTube channel. At Andrew Lazo is the handle on Insta and Twitter. Um, and so, yeah, and I'm on Facebook too. It's, I'm, I'm hard to avoid. <laughs> so <laughs> Great. Well, we, we would never want to avoid you. So no. um, yeah. yeah, thank you. Thank you again so much for joining us. It's been such a pleasure. Um, and listeners, thank you all for joining us as well. Um, and we'll see you next time on the Inkling's Variety Hour. Bye.
in any case, so Joy Davidman kind of falls in love with Lewis even while her marriage to Bill Gresham is ending in the late 40s. And she begins writing him love sonnets. Um, and there's a series of 45 of them. And they're in Don W. King's book, A Naked Tree, uh, which you can get on Amazon. And, um, and uh, we don't know, and that's the big question the scholars are asking, we don't really know whether or not she read them. Um, but there, there's a prefatory sonnet, sonnet, and it's an acrostic. It's, it's, a, it's the first letters are C.S. Mm -hmm. Lewis, and she, you know, she, she writes them and and writes this introductory sonnet. It's a sonnet cycle, um, as if she wants Jack to read them. Um, and so the last time I met, uh, I met with Walter Hooper in 2017 at Oxbridge, I said, Walter, did Joy read the poems, or did Jack read the poems? And he said, Well, you know. I believe she, I believe he did. Because when I came into Lewis's uh, rooms after he passed away, they were on his desk. So we have word of mouth, but we don't, there's no real solid evidence. But so she writes these sonnets. Some of them are despairing of ever winning Lewis. Some of them are really bold. In uh, one of them, she calls Lewis her great Antarctica, her newfound land of woman killing frost, you know, and she chaps him about only liking blondes, you know, and he's like, well, let me get him for an hour on my bed and he'll forget the color of the hair on my head. You know, it's marvelous stuff. So Joy meets Lewis in person in 52, in the fall of 52, um, moves back to England with the boys in 53, lives in London. And so in 53, 54, she's often visiting Lewis, Sometimes he'll let her stay at the kilns uh, on vacation while he's off in Ireland with Warney. Um, and so in 55, she's visiting from London and it's in the spring of 55. And she famously describes this in one of her letters. Um, he said that Lewis, now that he's at Cambridge and has all kinds of leisure, leisure, he's, um, he's dried up. He doesn't have an idea of her book. And she said, we poured another scotch each, uh, whiskey each, and we kicked around an idea until one came to life. And he came down the next day with the whole of the first chapter written. And she said, I rewrote it with him. Um, and then he carried on. She said, he says he finds my help indispensable. So this is 55. And it's this, the story that he's been trying to write since he was a teenager. Right. She's in love with him. The sonnets stop in 54 as they start writing in 55. And if you read the contemporaneous accounts from Chad and Eva Walsh and from Warney, um, it's in the spring and summer of 55 that everybody can see what's gonna happen, except Jack. So Jack doesn't realize he's in love with her until after he marries her in the registry office. And then after uh, she comes down with cancer. And then when he realizes that he's gonna lose her, that's when he realizes he's in love with her. But he marries her like three days before he writes to Jock Gibb about the dedication of the book to Joy David. And he said, oh, please make sure to keep the, the dedication far, far away from that phrase. Love is too young to know what conscience is. We wouldn't want anybody getting the wrong idea. They're married. <laughs> At least. The, so, so I think part of what helps you understand is that you can really hear Joy's voice in this. Um, and Lewis later on in the four loves, which I'll, I, I claim is the prose rendering of the four loves, which right. are contained into we have faces. Right. Um, 
so in that he says that friendship can turn into erotic love within the first half an hour. And so this seems to be what's happening. And then you can see Orwal and Bardia as a joy and Jack relationship. Hmm. Right. So anyway, I don't want to, yeah, we're so yeah, I don't want to get really, carried away. That's really fascinating. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we were talking yeah. a little bit about the epigram, epigra- epigraph. I yeah, always, epigraph. I think uh, yeah, love I is too, too young to know what conscience is. Um, I didn't look it up until after we <sighs> talked about it quite a bit and saw there was a Shakespeare uh, sonnet, a, a somewhat dirty Shakespeare sonnet. Um, uh-huh. What do you have any idea, like why that's like why is that the epigraph to Tilia faces? Yeah, um, I'm not sure. I'm not altogether sure. And Lewis doesn't talk about it much. Um, maybe Joyce Meyer or Peter Skockel. Peter Skockel's marvelous book, uh, Reason and Imagination. Mm-hmm. Um, and Doris Meyer's uh, book, Bareface. These are the two book-length books mm-hmm. on it. Um, but it's just conjecture. Lewis doesn't really say anything. Um, I think there's an element of uh, tinnadrill right? The green lady. Oh, I'm too young. And how old you are making me, right? Mm. I think there's a sense of that, uh, that young. And Orwal is, I think, in some ways, too self-consumed, almost in an infantile way, to really admit to herself that she's been violating her conscience the whole book, right? Because one of the key things to, to remember is at the beginning of book two, she says, I should go back and unroll my scroll um, to leave it. Thus would be to die perjured. Hmm. So she's deliberately misleading and deceiving herself, but hmm. also her readers in book one. Hmm. So there's this thing where she's, I don't think can have a good conscience because she doesn't really love Psyche. She just wants Psyche almost in this consumptive way, like Screwtape wants Wormwood. Or woman mm-hmm. once, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, the loving yeah. and the devouring are the same thing. Are the same thing, right. right? Right. And she thinks that's a terrible thing, but any good liturgical Eucharistic Christian <laughs> knows that the love and the devouring are the same thing, right? Yeah. So, yeah. 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 So I think that there's a, a, a little bit of that, and and I think that Lewis is not admitting that he's in love. And I asked Larry Crabb um, of, of, of beloved memory, of sainted memory. He just passed away, of a Christian psychologist. And he just passed away on February 28th. Um, mm. and, uh, but I asked Larry Crabb at Oxbridge. I said, could Lewis have compartmentalized enough to have fallen in love with her with joy, but not admitted to himself that he fell in love with her? And he said, oh yeah, all the time. And men do that all the time. Plus, Lewis had a good reason to be afraid of emotion with his kind of up and down father and all this grief and tragedy that he dealt with, losing his mother and being in the war and all that. So, so there are some of those kind of dynamics going on. I apologize. It's been three weeks since you last heard from us. Uh, I'd like to pretend that this is because we were being very pious and taking a break over Easter, but really it's mainly because my semester has been crazy. Uh, All the same, I hope you enjoyed this podcast with our special guest, Andrew Lazo. Um, Andrew comes to us courtesy of the very excellent Pints with Jack podcast, where he is often co-host. 
if you like this podcast, but could use something a bit more polished, a bit more focused on C.S. Lewis, and certainly a bit more regular, um, do check out Pints with Jack. And now, Mr. W.H. Auden. All blessed encounter, full of joy, unscheduled on the decent plan, with here an addict of Tolkien, there a Charles Williams fan.